Um, Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thanks that you speak to us. And I pray this morning that you will uh, give us a vision of how you want to use us in this world. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So I did notice while Anne was reading that, uh, that some of you weren't here last week or even the week before, and that long reading from the second half of the book of Ruth might seem a little obscure and weird if you, if you haven't read chapters one and two. So let me encourage you, go home and read the first two chapters uh, of the text because it's a great story. The summary of the story, just so you know where we've been to, is there was this woman, Naomi, and she was married to a fellow called Elimelech, and they were Israelites, and they had two sons, and there was a famine in Israel, so they went to Moab, which was a, a traditional enemies of the Israelites. They fled to Moab in order to survive the famine. They stayed there 10 years. Naomi's two sons married Moabite women, one of whose names was Ruth. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Her two sons died. She was left a widow with uh, two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, they then decided after 10 years they were, they needed to, she needed to go back to Israel, to Bethlehem. So she goes back. Orpah stays in Moab. But Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. I'm the Moabite. I'm a widow. I have nothing. We're both destitute. We both have, have nothing uh, at all in us. We're, life has been extraordinarily hard. So they go back to Bethlehem. And they go back to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, uh, things start to turn around and they meet Boaz. And if you want to hear a bit more about Boaz, listen to the sermon from last week. It's online, also on the church app. And, uh, and they meet Boaz, and uh, Boaz is a really good guy. And he looks after them, and he provides for them economically. That's the first two chapters of Ruth. Then we get to these two chapters, and they are fascinating. I mean, this is like a soap opera. There is planning. There is scheming. There is uh, a bit of frisson, a bit of unresolved sexual tension to drive the narrative along. A bit of, will she, won't she, will he, won't he, what's going to happen? How's it all going to work out? It's great. It is a wonderful piece of storytelling. And from this, I was thinking, actually, I could spend a lot of time unpacking it, but there's three things I wanted to, three points I wanted to make from these two chapters. One is, God has a plan for the world, and he uses us in this plan, and the second thing is, for God to use us in his plan, you and I need to do the right thing, and we'll think about what that is. And then the third thing is, in God's plan for your life, the outcome will massively exceed our expectations or our contribution. Okay, so let's think a little bit about that. So God has a plan, and that's one of the things, when you read the book of Ruth, you see everything works out. Ruth and Naomi go from a place of destitution and emptiness and end up in a place of abundance and fullness, and God has worked it all out. And that's incredibly good news. But what's interesting in the book of Ruth is God isn't front and center in the story. It's actually the human characters who are front and center, and God is kind of in the background a little bit until a key point, which we'll see later, which is a very interesting point for God to emerge as the actor. Um, and what we can say from that is in God's plan, he uses us. He uses our agency and our contribution, which I find fascinating. You see, it's very easy in the world, isn't it, uh, to 
adopt a position of permanent victimhood. Right? And this is one of the problems with uh, identity politics and intersectionality in our culture that says because of our group, our class, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual orientation, and the way these things work together, we are permanently those who are oppressed by others. Now, for sure, there is oppression and injustice in the world. But it is a terrible, terribly, a terrible counsel of despair, a, a recipe containing large doses of um, catastrophizing that leads us to think we have no agency and everyone who's powerful is against us. Because uh, that's not true. We have agency, we have power, we can choose. And in the Bible's view of your life and my life, our agency, our capacity to plan, our capacity to choose, and as we do that, our capacity to work with God is something that no one else can ever take away from us. Never lose that fundamental part of our, uh, our being as made in the image of God that we have we have agency and power and we can choose. Now, sure, it can be constrained and limited by others, but that, that can never be removed. And you see that here, right? So um, Ruth is a Moabite. She's an outsider and she's a widow. So she's the lowest of the low. Naomi is a widow who's been away for 10 years and has come back. They have nothing. There is no one to look after them. But they make a plan and they act One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Okay, I've got to do this. I'm going to take care of you. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, he's a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be, on the winnowing, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So here's the plan, Ruth. He's old, single, rich, relative, working hard, harvesting. There's going to be a party after the harvest. He's going to be in a really good mood. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the flat threshing floor, but... Don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. She's very, she's thought this through. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. Now, that's a plan. Now, and, and these two women are exercising their agency to work with God with what they have. Now let's pause that and say, how many of you feel a little uncomfortable with their plan? Why do you feel a little uncomfortable with their plan? Kimberly, your hand went up first. Sorry? It could go very wrong. 
How do you think it could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. It's a little forward. It's a little forward. There's some sort of downside potential to this plan. What else might make us feel uncomfortable about this? It could, could be seen as a little manipulative. Anything else? Like, there is, and I feel very uncomfortable even saying this, but the Bible says it, so I should say it. Like, we feel uncomfortable because they are used, she is using her sexuality and her availability to provide for herself. In the age of Me Too and equality and uh, extraordinary sense and right sensitivity around power imbalance and sexuality, somehow that feels like, ugh. But here's the thing. This actually is the way the world works. And the Bible's really honest in its portrayal of life. And we just go, yep, reading this in, the 20, in 21st century Roselle, it feels just a little bit uncomfortable. But that's what they have to work with. Ruth is a young, attractive widow. Boaz is an older, single relative. And Naomi's going, hmm, here's a solution to all our problems. Let's see how this will work. Right? Now... Uh, there it is but as Kimberly says there is lots of downside to this isn't there I mean things could have gone really 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 wrong like what Boaz could have taken advantage of her right could have gone poor here you are, it's night time, on the threshing floor, there's no one else around, I will take advantage of you sexually, and I will abandon you and leave you and not do the right thing by you. Okay, he could have done that. And in fact, isn't it true that many, 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 many men might have done that? Could get away with it, right? Maybe. Which takes us to our second point. In God's work in the world, the onus is upon all of us in this world to do the right thing. To use the phrase that we've been talking about, to do the stuff. To do the stuff in the world that Jesus says we should do. And what is extraordinary in this text, and I think, I think this is why... The story puts Ruth in this position of extraordinary vulnerability. It's to highlight Boaz's extraordinary righteousness. I think that's what's on, on view here, that it says, here's Ruth and Naomi, they come up with a plan. It's a plan almost of desperation. It's a plan of extraordinary vulnerability. It's a plan of some cunning and perhaps a bit of manipulation. And it shines a spotlight on good old Boaz, who does what's right. So he wakes up in the middle of the night. Woohoo! There's a there's a woman at my feet. 
and she's all perfumed up and beautiful and gorgeous and young. So what does he do? He does absolutely the right thing when he could have done absolutely the wrong thing and she would have gone along with it and he would have got away with it for sure. And he does the right thing. In fact, he does more than the right thing. He honors her. He protects her. He makes sure that she leaves before dawn so there's just enough light. The commentators think that he's carefully constructed so there's just enough light that she can get home safely but not enough light that others will be up and she could be spotted, uh, you know, doing a walk of shame back to the village and get all the tongues wagging and cast aspersions on her character. And he gives her breakfast and breakfast to take home for uh, Naomi and he provides abundantly for her. He does the right thing. So if we're going to work with God to change the world, if we want to be used by God, be like Boaz. (laughs) Do the right thing. We need to fill the world with people who have a plan, who have agency, but then use that agency and that power to protect and provide for others, particularly the weak and the vulnerable. That's, that's it. And what I find fascinating is Boaz does the right thing when no one else was watching and he could have got away with it. And you think about that as that's what we need in our world today, don't we? We need people of influence and power. We need leaders who will do the right thing even when no one's watching and you could get away with it. Huh. Of course, I mean, one of the sad things about our culture now Uh, for many of our leaders, is actually we don't really care what they do in their private lives or really what they do in their public lives as long as they affirm the politics of our particular identity group and they, uh, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? Somehow we think what you do in your own life and who you are as a person, as a leader, doesn't matter. We see this writ large across our society. Even though at another level we're the most censorious, prudish and uptight culture that has been around for a very long time. So it's this weird combination in our culture of prudish censoriousness along with almost an expectation that everyone in leadership and in power will be selfish and flawed, and if they're men, they will be sexually exploitative. But we just don't worry about that because at least they represent our tribe in the White House or in, you know, number 10 Downing Street or in, uh, you know, a boardroom somewhere. And, uh, and God says to you and to me, do the right thing, even when no one's watching. So that requires a lifetime of training our character. So uh, I thought about this. I thought, um, here's a practice that can help each of us train ourselves to do the right thing day by day. And it's a practice of examining our lives, doing daily or weekly course corrections. And it comes from a fellow called John Wesley. So start of the Methodist movement, John and his brother Charles uh, were part of this um, transformation of England and the U.S. bringing religious revival and Christianity to bring social transformation, poor relief, as well as evangelism and uh, a revival throughout uh, England and the colonies. And John and his brother Charles, when they were at university, developed the, uh, what they called a holiness club. 
And in this club, they developed 22 questions which they would ask themselves every day as a way of training themselves to do the right thing when no one's watching. Okay? So here are the 22 questions. They're available on the app, and, uh, and we'll email them all out so you can read them. And I would say, if you want to change the shape of 2020 for yourself, uh, fi- ask yourself these questions honestly and find somebody who you, where you can talk about your answers on a weekly basis. A holiness club. Could be your partner. It'd be a, a great husband and wife activity to do. You want to get closer to your spouse? Work through these 22 questions on a weekly basis with your spouse. Uh, it'll change your marriage, I'm pretty sure. Have a look at this. Here are the questions. If you want to be a Boaz, if you want to live like Jesus, you want to do this stuff, a page from John and Charles Wesley. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I, that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? I used to be, but then, you know, God set me free from all of that, and now, you know. Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Never. In a million years would I come anywhere close to exaggerating even the tiniest little thing. Am I honest? uh, Do I confidentially pass on to others what has been said to me in confidence? Am I a gossip? Well, you know, I heard this, I heard that. Do you do it in the workplace? Do you do it in church? Do you do it in your family? Can I be trusted? Honestly, think to yourself, can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, to friends, to work, or to habits? Oh, oh. how's that? That's a brutal question. Get, get, like, get someone who knows you really well to answer, help you, and then review that every, every week. You know, am I, have I become a slave? You know, I, I clear, I'm a slave to dress. I, I, I'm, I'm just completely captive to the latest fashions. And, uh, so, so. It was a joke. I thought it was quite funny. Kimberly thought it was funny. She said, what do you say? Why are you laughing? Yeah, I look, I look okay. Oh, thanks, Kimberly. I've said free from that. I'm slaves to other things, but that one, not so much. Um, am I, how about this? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Um, did the Bible live in me today? Did the Word of God live in me today? Do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? Do you enjoy it like talking to God? Uh, when did I last speak to someone else of my faith? Whatever faith you have. When did last did you share your faith with someone else and invite them to church, talk to them about how much God loves them? Um, I love this one. Do I pray about the money I spend? Uh, Margot was reading this out to me last night before we went to uh, sleep, and uh, she was going through these, and I, she's like, isn't this great? Because it's not like spending money is bad. It's just when you spend money, pray about it. You know, Lord, is this what I should be doing? Is this, is this a wise purchase? Is this a wise allocation of your resources? Like what a, you know, when last did you do that? Uh, do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Well, we're going to go through this with our teenagers uh, every day. Just, you know, are you getting as close to eight hours sleep as you can get? Now, if you've got young kids... That's a little optimistic, but, um, you know, be disciplined. Do, do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? 
you know what you, you know when you're thinking of doing something and you're like, oh, I just, oh, you know, that's a, but I, th- I think I'm going to do it anyway. But you kind of know in your heart of hearts, it's probably just a little. Uh, um, uh, am I defeated in any part of my life? Yeah. God wants us to flourish, and, and where's the defeat, and why? Am I? And really, you know, this is this sneaks in like six questions. Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? Go answer that. The assumption is those are bad things, so you should be the goal over the course of your life is no, 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 no. Yes. No. How do I spend my spare time? What do you do with your spare time? Do you invest it in others? Or would you just waste it, frivolous? Because you'll never get it back again, right? Like it's, it's a great gift, it's gone. Am I proud? I had a conversation with someone the other day who's in a position of leadership, and I said to them, I think you are demonstrating a hubris that is unbecoming to your office. I said, I think you're proud. And he was very upset with me. And I said, but it's okay because I'm proud. I'm so proud that I think I can see pride in you. Because <laughs> that's, the, that's the position of so many of our hearts. Oh, am I proud? I said, no, no. We've got to call that out on each other. Do I thank God that I'm not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the public? And well, you know, I'm, it's really good that I'm not like these proud people <laughs> or these people who don't go through these 22 questions every day. Um, is, there someone, is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward or disregard? And if so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Even regularly. And the final question, which is the clincher for them all, is Christ real to me? Not just an idea, not just an abstract concept. Is Christ real? Now, imagine the shape of our little community if all of us in this church were continually course-correcting our actions and our behaviors and our thoughts and our feelings based on these 22 questions. Imagine if we actually lived like this. Like, that's... That's the Christian life, right? That's the Boaz-shaped life. That's what it is to do the right thing. What gives Boaz the ability instinctively and as an act of second nature to resist exploiting uh, Ruth and using his power for his own sexual gratification? It's because his character has been shaped, so he just does what is right. Here is a tool to train your character so that you instinctively and automatically do what is right when you're under pressure. See, it's not hard to do what's right in church. Uh, Here, actually in church it can be, but like Sunday here, when we're all together, we can all do what's right for an hour, hour and a half. But it's when you're really under pressure, when you're really tempted, when work's hard, when you're sleep-deprived, when you've got opportunity. It's when you want to train our character. So do what is right. Okay, there we go. John Wesley. 
Now here's the thing. Our final point. When we have a plan and we work with God and we do what we can do, God comes through for us in ways that go way beyond our expectations or contributions. See, how do I know when God is at work in my life? It's when I do this, but the outcome massively exceeds my contribution. And I go, there's a gap between what I did and what happened, and that's God at work. That's God at work. And, and one of the things we need to keep in view, and Christmas is a good time for it, is that this world and you and I in it has a glorious future ahead of us. The world ends well. The story has a happy ending for you and for me. That's what the story, that's what happens to Ruth and Naomi. I mean, a way abundantly better than anything they could have imagined. So what happens? Boaz does the right thing. Boaz very cleverly goes to another kinsman redeemer, a person who had the right to buy um, Naomi's land, uh, Elimelech's land. Uh, he says, no, I don't want the land because I get Ruth the Moabites with it. And so Boaz goes, you beauty, now I can legally buy the land and I can get Ruth as my wife. And she goes from being a foreigner, an outsider, a widow who is starving, to being married to a man of stature in the community, uh, secure and provided for. And if that's not enough, what else does she get? What does she get? What's the most valuable thing a woman could have? In, uh, in the time when this story was written. A son. Sons were the most valuable thing a woman could have. They provided the security of your name. They provided for you in the future. They kept your village safe. They were everything. And so she has a son. Now, um, this is one of the most interesting verses in the book. Uh, then, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Uh, when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. So it, it does appear, and, and from the text, it would seem that Ruth had probably been married to one of Naomi's sons for a while and hadn't been able to conceive, so there's maybe some fertility issues. But you know why this is really interesting, this verse? And I've read this story so many times, and it just struck me this week in preparing this. Do you know why this is interesting? This is the only time in the story where God is the active participant. He steps onto uh, the front of the stage in the story. The rest of the time he's talked about, he's talked to, but he's not acting. He's not the subject He's not the one doing things. Here he is. Why? Well, because maybe he wanted to bless her with far more than she could have imagined. All she really wanted was a husband and some economic security. But God wanted to give her a son. But actually, there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because it's not just any son. This is, 
This is why God acts to do abundantly more than anything Ruth could have imagined or believed. Uh, She doesn't just get any son, she gets Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and now you're all getting really excited. You're going, yeah, he's the dad of Jesse. And who's Jesse? He's the father of David. And who's David? He's the greatest king in Israel. And not only that, David is the one who, it's out of his lineage that God himself chooses to come as a baby into the world. So David and Jesse and Obed and Ruth are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Like, imagine that. That's what God does. He takes a destitute, desperate, starving enemy of Israel, a Moabite woman, Ruth, and he uses her desperation and her cunning and her mother-in-law to make her the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? You just go, wow. Wow. So that's amazing. There's, there's, now I don't reckon when Naomi was coming up with a plan to snare Boaz that she was thinking to herself, get a man, get some money, get a roof over our heads, get some food and become the ancestor of Israel's Messiah who will save the whole world. I don't think she was thinking that. She was just like, how do we survive? And then God does something far, far greater, far more wonderful. Uh, You may be just trying to survive. Your head may be down and life may be coming at you with all kinds of difficulties, and all you're trying to do is get through today, get through tomorrow, get through this week. And today God is saying to you, I have a plan for your life that exceeds anything you could imagine. I love you beyond your wildest imaginings. I will secure for you a future that is glorious. I will secure for you a place in a new creation where I will wipe away the tears, every one of the tears from your eyes. I will secure for you a place where... Now your humanity flourishes in a way you can't begin to imagine, where every sorrow and every grief and every regret and every bit of shame and every bit of guilt and every bit of relational brokenness and mess in your life is taken care of, and all that is left is pure, unadulterated glory and joy and love. He says, that's what God is going to do for you, because that's what he did for Ruth. And that's the kind of God who we worship this Christmas. That's what he's like. The world where there are no more disappointments, no more injustice, no more sickness, no more death. God will create a future for you that will massively exceed every expectation or every contribution you could make, because that's his character. Isn't that wonderful? Do you, do you, believe, do you believe that? <laughs> do you believe that this Christmas? 
you trusting that? Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this story. There's so much in it, Lord. Help us to be like Boaz, to do what's right. Help us to be like Naomi, to plan, to use the agency you've given us. And then help us to be like Ruth, who experiences an outcome of blessing in her life that is far greater than anything she could imagine. And I pray for us this Christmas season that in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, we will trust you to to do for us immeasurably more than we could even begin to ask or imagine. Fill us with joy this Christmas, Lord. Fill us with, with hope. Fill us with just this glorious anticipation of uh, the world that you are going to create and that you are going to heal and restore and our place in it. Oh, Lord, uh, give us a taste of that this Christmas. We ask all this in your wonderful, wonderful name. Amen.